Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora, ko William Ray Aho. Welcome to Black Sheep. Just a warning, this episode discusses sex and sex workers. It might not be appropriate for younger listeners. Now what about yourself? Have you ever been a prostitute? Do you want your face, mate? You'll get that shortly. This is Flora McKenzie. Probably the most famous brothel keeper in New Zealand history. The guy she's threatening to smack in the head is Radio New Zealand journalist Ray Hayes. You believe in God still? Yes. Do you think he approves of what you're doing? Well, if you read the Bible, he doesn't. He thinks it's wrong. He forgave... Mary Magdalene and told her to go and sin no more. This interview was recorded in 1976. Flora was 74 years old and had just been prosecuted for brothel keeping. It was the sixth time she'd appeared in court in the last decade or so. But I'm not doing it. I'm not sinning. Now, this sex is increasing, it's going to go on, it's getting dirtier, it's getting filthier. They're getting fed up with it by about 17. They've got to have all sorts of contraptions and all sorts of positions now to have sex. Then they have to get on to drugs because they're fed up with living. So how does God get along with the millions in the world doing that? Then he's only got me to worry about because I'm not far off meeting them, am I? As you can probably tell from this interview, Flora was a real character. There are all kinds of crazy stories about her. There's the time she threw a dead dog at her neighbour, her famous round revolving bed, her close friendship with the head of the Auckland Vice Squad. Some of these stories are true, but others might be full-on fabrications. Obviously, it's very hard to get the truth because you hear so many different versions and you have to try and cobble it together from, you know, hearsay and newspaper articles and letters people write to you. This is Elizabeth Esther. She's a playwright and actor and also probably the closest thing we have to a Flora McKenzie expert. When I first started researching her, because I did um, uh, Flora McKenzie for my monologue at drama school back in the day when you had to do it you know, a solo show, you know, for part of your training. And my mother suggested Flora McKenzie, whom I had never heard of, and started looking. So I wrote to all the editors of all the newspapers, the Christchurch Press, the ODT, the Herald, the Dom- Dominion, and the Evening Post, as they were two separate things, and, and said that I was doing this play and if anyone would want to write to me that they could. And I got all these wonderful letters from police officers and seamstresses and friends and one rather quite not very balanced sounding man who I think might have been some sort of paranoid schizophrenic, but quite long letters to write over years. 
Elizabeth became so fascinated by this story, she turned that monologue into a full play, Famous Flora, named after the brothel she ran for more than 30 years. Can't the old soak just reach a verdict and be done with it? Come on, judge, get a wriggle on. His honour's much quicker when he's being charged by the hour. Flora, would you please behave? Elizabeth's play is a fictionalised version of Flora's life story, but parts of the script are direct quotes from Flora herself or from her close mates. As much as possible in this episode, we're going to try to stick to the facts, but there are going to be places where all we have to go on is rumours and guesses. Flora McKenzie was born in Auckland in 1902. She came from the upper crust of Auckland society. Her parents were sort of fancy landed gentry down in Mangere, and our Mangere, as they probably would have said. Just by the way, in those days, Mangere was mostly farmland and big estates. It wasn't built up like it is today. And she, yeah, she was all horse races and being introduced to the Queen and, you know, presented at court and debutantes and... You know, she was a she was a society gal. She met the Queen. Yeah, and there was such a scandal because she crossed her legs instead of, you know, just sort of tying them together at the ankles with the knees pressed tightly together, and that caused a great scandal. And I think she did it on purpose. Flora's dad was Sir Hugh Mackenzie, a horse stud owner and head of the Auckland Harbour Board. But we don't know a huge amount about her childhood. There's really not a lot of information. Mum was, you know didn't appear a lot, and Dad was a bigwig in, you know, manly business circles. According to Flora herself, she had a pretty sheltered religious upbringing. I was chaperoned till I was 28 years of age. I was brought up sex with with marriage. At first, Flora trained as a nurse, but historian Barbara Brooks says that wasn't a good fit for her personality. She couldn't stand being told what to do by the superiors in the nursing matrons I guess they were um, and so she she gave up on that I mean she was she was going to be her own person whatever she did. Instead Flora left New Zealand and spent a couple of years in Australia hanging out with the bohemian crowd in Sydney. The world was still in the aftershocks of the first world war and the 1918 flu pandemic. Global culture was going through a seismic shift as we moved into the roaring 20s. And while she was over in Australia, Flora developed a talent for fashion design, and she put that to use as soon as she arrived back in New Zealand a few years later. By 1927, she was the sole owner of Nanette Gowns, a high-end fashion shop on Queen Street. As Elizabeth Esther points out, that's pretty good going for a 25-year-old. And I think that's where her true love lay and also an incredible talent that she had. But it was also her parents weren't that fussed with her being in trade, you know, for for a girl from a good family to really do anything but just get married and produce endless little sproglets is um, not something to be proud of. And yet she was running this fabulous emporium, the, the finest, incredible, most incredible work. I should say we don't actually know how Flora's family reacted to her running a business. Barbara Brooks points out that clothing manufacture was considered an acceptable career option for women in those days. 
and it was a major employer of women in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. But what's unusual about her business is it's high fashion and she's got a particular market uh, that she knows how to cater to. So she comes from that social class and caters to that social class they could relate to her on the same level. And when you read descriptions of her fitting rooms, you know, it's all set out with great glamour uh, to impress the customers and make them feel at home. And she took meticulous care. She would check that customers approved of the fabric. She always bought best fabric. She would send, often send them a drawing and then they would, you know, consult if they were outside of Auckland some of the beautiful gowns in our museum collections. So um, she was a very astute businesswoman and presumably her father, who was also a very successful man, um, you know, had taught her a few things about business. You might have noticed we've just heard two diametrically opposing theories about Flora's father from Barbara Brooks and Elizabeth Esther. Was he a supportive dad helping her start a business? Or was he a high society snob who looked down his nose at her success? We just don't know. And that's kind of unfortunate because if we did know more about Flora's family life, it might explain how this high society fashion designer went on to become New Zealand's most infamous brothel owner. This is terribly speculative, but when thinking about what we don't know about her, you know, I was wondering what the relationship between the father and the mother were and if the father had a mistress, you know, had had that actually been part of her life that men had other women on the side? We don't know. And I, I don't want to cast, you know, unnecessary questions about his life. But um, these are all things that create a life, aren't they? The relationships with parents and and how one sees their relationships working out. So from all these little bits and pieces, we can put together a picture of Flora McKenzie in the 1930s. She's a successful young businesswoman, comfortable navigating high society. She dabbles in counterculture. She's unmarried, determined to be her own woman. The mystery is how this woman turns into Madame Flora, the hard-drinking, hard-talking brothel keeper of the 1960s and 70s. But before we do that... We just need a little bit more background. So let's do a quick crash course on the history of sex work in Aotearoa. You could argue it got started as soon as European explorers and whalers began arriving in New Zealand in the late 1700s and early 1800s. Sailors on these voyages were only too happy to trade metal, tools and other goods with Pacific Islanders in exchange for sex. In fact, there's this one story from British Navy Captain Samuel Wallace, who led the first European expedition to Tahiti. He says his ship started to fall to pieces during that trip because the sailors had been prizing out all the nails to trade with Tahitian women. Barbara Brooks warns we should be a little bit careful comparing these exchanges to Western ideas about sex work. What we might now see as sex work and others might call prostitution might be seen very differently on the ground from the people visited by the ships. So it might be seen as a form of hospitality, as part of sort of hosting guests women might be offered 
but I don't think that it was uh, the same kind of uh, prostitution that existed in London, for example. Modern sex work really got underway after the colonisation of New Zealand began in the 1840s. For most of New Zealand's early colonial history, women were heavily outnumbered by men, especially during the gold rush era. That inevitably led to huge demand for sex workers. If women's only choice was domestic service, where they were under surveillance 24 hours a day, If they were lucky, they might get a Sunday afternoon off and they got miserable wages, although the wages were better than what they received in the UK. Um, You know, sex work might have its attractions because you could determine your own hours. You might get paid better. The first law regulating sex work was the 1869 Contagious Diseases Act, which required police to detain any woman deemed to be, and I quote, a common prostitute. These women could then be imprisoned in a hospital and subjected to forced genital examination. The male clients didn't face any kind of criminal sanction. It used to be called instrumental rape, actually, and this led to outrage in the feminist community and there was a big campaign against the Contagious Diseases Act because they saw it as the absolute epitome of the double standard whereby women got punished for something that was uh, basically the fault of men, you know, that, that women were not supposed to have uh, any sexual life, whereas men were allowed to sow their wild oats. By the time Flora came onto the scene, the Contagious Diseases Act had been repealed, but both prostitution and brothel keeping had been specifically outlawed. There's still a lot of uh, disapproval of sex work. You know, there was this real concern about protecting young women from the dangers of pregnancy outside of marriage. They had no way to support themselves, for example. You know, it's not till 1973 that we have the domestic purposes benefit. So, you know, by the 1930s, people were using diaphragms and condoms were much more readily available. So there were forms of contraception that could be employed, but there was still a great deal of uh, stigma. And I think this idea of kind of sex as recreation is really a post- But still, attitudes towards sex work in the early 20th century could be complex. At a time where middle-class women might not want to get pregnant, they might prefer their husbands to have a mistress or a bit on the side than to be bothering them. The most popular story of how Flora McKenzie entered the sex industry is that it happened by accident in the 1940s. By this point, Flora was in her early 40s, living in an apartment building in Ring Terrace. These days, that's near Jarvis Road, right next to the on-ramp for the Auckland Harbour Bridge. Her parents had bought the property for her, and she rented some of the rooms to young single women. As Flora tells the story, one of these women had told her that she was a business secretary. One day, Flora needed to fill out a complicated tax form, so she went downstairs to ask her tenant if she could help her out. And she said to me, do you want me to leave? And I said, Lee, why do I want you to leave? She said, do you want me to leave tonight? And I said, dear, what for? She said, I can't help you. I said, why not? She said, I'm a prostitute. I said, what is a prostitute? I've never heard it in my life before. Flora says she eventually worked out what a prostitute was, and this woman explained that her story about being a secretary was a front. Really, she was just using the phone at Ring Terrace to contact her clients. 
But instead of turfing her out, Flora decided to keep her on. Before long, there were quite a few sex workers operating out of Ring Terrace, and Flora started taking a cut of their earnings. By this point, Flora was clearly in breach of Part 7 of the 1908 Crimes Act. Crimes against religion, morals and public convenience. Everyone is liable to two years' imprisonment with hard labour who keeps any disorderly house, that is to say, any common bawdy house. Bawdy house is just the old-timey term for a brothel. Or, as the 1908 Crimes Act puts it, A house, room, set of rooms, or place of any kind whatever, kept for purposes of prostitution. And, right at that point in the 1940s, there was a big demand for bawdy houses. At last we got a break, all ashore. Boy, did real solid land feel good. You can bet your bottom dollar it did. We had a lot of queer ideas as to what New Zealand would be like. Imagine our surprise when a milk wagon came along. We hadn't tasted fresh milk since we left the States, and boy, did it taste good. That's an extract from the diary of a US Marine, Private Bob Hatch. It was broadcast as part of a newsreel by the New Zealand National Film Unit in 1943. But of course, that newsreel didn't mention that the thousands of US servicemen who passed through Aotearoa on their way to war in the Pacific were often greeted with more than just bottles of fresh milk. These men are, of course, very interested in sex and interested in in New Zealand women. And New Zealand women are interested in the American men because they treated them differently than they were used to being treated by New Zealand men. They brought them flowers. They had money to buy them stockings. um, And there was kind of a chivalry about them that some women have commented on. I'm sure that's not true of all of them. But women were surprised by that compared to the kind of New Zealand inarticulate, um, you know, the men all stood together at dances and women stood down the other end of the hall and uh, (laughs) kind of a a different way of interacting. Listeners will have seen war stories our mothers never told us, but if if they haven't, <laughs> I would recommend it because there's uh, you know some wonderful accounts of the relationships with American servicemen. Oh, they used to come in carloads, wagon. I'll tell you what, the third night the guys were in here, there were old women, must be hitting 60 or 70, coming out in there looking like young lambs and their old hoggets. Tell you what. But while many Kiwi women were keen for relationships with American men without any money changing hands, Sex workers were also flooded with clients. You know, my understanding of Flora McKenzie, I don't know if it's right, is that the women in her apartment building were entertaining these men. And so she sort of became a madam by default in, in that she suddenly realised what they were doing and, and saw no harm in it and so was willing to protect them. Elizabeth Esther's sources have a slightly different version of the story. They suggested her involvement in sex work might have actually started before the war. So she was arranging a lot of social engagements for her father, and in doing so, because she was also a dress designer with her Nanette gowns, 
she um, had all these beautiful mannequins, the girls who would model the clothes rather than just dummies. And so she would take the girls to the parties as part of the, you know, the catering, the wine, the beer, the, you know, and the girls came too. And that's in my understanding and also my sort of putting it together, how she got into the business because some people thought they were for sale. And of course, when World War II got started, Flora started organising parties for visiting officers in the US Armed Forces. And again, the story that I heard, um, many of the servicemen thought they were good time girls and they organised to send the money back to Flora's. And by the time they'd left port, people on um, various you know places where sailors went had put for a good time called Flora's. And so this, the next ship coming in went, oh, who's this Flora? Oh, my God, we've got to get to Flora's. And, um, you know, and so it began. And she thought, well, you know, this way we all get a little bit of extra in this time of rationing and deprivation. So this is a murky part of the story. It's pretty clear Flora got into brothel keeping by accident, but it's very unclear exactly how or when. It might have been in the 30s or 40s. It's possible it might have been as late as 1958. But there is an intriguing bit of evidence here. In late January 1943, Flora McKenzie appeared in court, and this article popped up in the New Zealand Herald. A plea of guilty was entered in the case in which Flora McKenzie was charged with being in possession of 3,400 cigarettes, uncustomed goods. Her lawyer, Mr Simpson, said the defendant had entertained a number of American officers and they had generously left the cigarettes in return. She could not, with courtesy, refuse to accept them. A fine of £25 was imposed. I mean, reading between the lines, that, that feels like that might have been sort of almost a form of currency. Oh, my gosh, yes. See, now, I, in all my exhaustive, what I thought was exhaustive in the 1990s research, I didn't know that. And that absolutely smacks of, um, you know, currency. Again, it's a little bit murky. The court case doesn't actually mention prostitution. The fine was imposed because the cigarettes Flora had been gifted dodged the heavy wartime taxes imposed on tobacco. But that line which said Flora was entertaining a number of American officers sounds like pretty heavy innuendo to my ears. And to me, it just makes sense that Flora got involved in sex work during World War II. It just feels like this was a time when an independent-minded, high-society girl could justify getting involved in something which she might have found unthinkable in peacetime. One of the fascinating things, I think, about World War II is it became a, a duty, really, to entertain servicemen. That was seen as part of the, the war effort. That doesn't necessarily mean sexual services, but, you know, women ran canteens and dance halls and saw it as part of their uh, contribution to the war effort. For those young women, it was uh, probably fun, and some of them may have even fallen in love with Americans. You know, various New Zealanders did. One of those New Zealanders might actually have been Flora McKenzie herself. A love story between Flora and an American serviceman is a major part of Elizabeth Esther's play. What do you say I take you away from all this? This is my war effort. I have a duty to serve. And after the war? All in good time. 
That was largely um, people alluding uh, and very thin and veiled allusions, and there was nothing I could ever really pin on it. Very, but it, it made a good story arc within the play. But it was hard to know, you know, whether or not also there there'd been an unwanted pregnancy was another thing I heard. It it's so it, it's very tempting to have a séance because <laughs> the story goes, you know, that she met this American. Um, serviceman who, who, you know, she fell in love with and then he died in the war and never came back. And that sort mm. of broke her heart. And from there she sort of, you know, fell into drink and and vice, I guess, basically. Mm. I mean, do you, can you believe that from what you, the other impressions you get from her, that that was the, the route that she came down? Well, she definitely became a sad woman. And it's hard, you know, as a chicken and an egg. Was she sad because she drank too much and it, you know, plays havoc with your equilibrium? Or was she sad because these things happened and then she drank too much because she was trying to numb the pain? And, um, you know, I mean, she had endless access to things. You know, it was a nighttime sort of profession where people are, you know, boozing and smoking and carrying on. Although I don't think she smoked, actually. Um it's just so hard to know. And the further we get from that time, the harder it is to find out. She definitely was um, shunned by a lot of polite society, and that's going to have to hurt as well because she was once, you know, smack bang in the middle of it and, you know, and, and part of the scene and, and very respected. And to lose that must have been a painful process. However it happened, by 1958, Flora shut down her fashion business and became a full-time brothel keeper. As Elizabeth Esther mentioned, she was also a full-time alcoholic. Alcohol features in lots of stories about Flora. Like, here's one from the Dictionary of New Zealand Biography. Flora sought help from Alcoholics Anonymous, somewhat unsuccessfully. She pretended she liked drinking milk and bought two pints a day, which she then mixed liberally with spirits and kept in the refrigerator. Whenever anyone from AA visited, Mackenzie beamed virtuously as she sipped her milk. Another anecdote claimed that when she was busted by the cops for brothel keeping and locked up for six months, she went through serious withdrawal. After she got out, she invited the head of the vice squad round to her house and offered him a drink. He asked for a whiskey, so she poured him one, turned around and threw the glass in his face, yelling... If I can't drink, you can't drink either. These are clearly pretty funny stories, but they gloss over what sounds like a very serious addiction. It's that thing about who was looking after her, because I believe, you know, obviously her family disowned her to a large degree. You know, she, she was really, you know, it must have been a very lonely and sad existence a lot of the time. But then she's also got all those lovely friends, like two of the dearest friends who I spoke to, Anna Hoffman, the self-proclaimed witch who died recently, unfortunately, who, who was just gorgeous and wrote all these um, editions of her autobiography. And Billy Farnell, who was a dear friend of hers and still plays the piano at um, Shanghai Lil's, you know, the bar he owns, where some of her furniture, Flora's furniture, still um, is in residence. They were always quite um, protective of Flora's memory when they spoke of her. They weren't just people trying to go, oh, yes, I knew her. There were definitely some people who wanted to be seen as having known her, which felt a little bit, um, you know, like they were trying to take a free ride on someone else's coattails of infamy. Another close friend was Alec Leyland. He did an extensive interview with Metro magazine after Flora died. Notorious she's been branded. 
but I knew her for what she was from the soul. She'd never see anyone in trouble. The crazy thing is, Alec Leyland was a police officer. And not just any police officer, he was the head of the Auckland City Vice Squad. Alec personally busted Flora three times for keeping a brothel, although he said he did it reluctantly. That article actually has one amazing anecdote about an attempted sting at Ring Terrace in the 1970s. A trap was laid. The serial numbers of a few large denomination notes were formally recorded and the money given to a young detective who was instructed to visit Flora's by the services of a girl and then, just as she had her clothes off, was to signal the police waiting outside who would bust in and arrest the girl. But the police kept waiting and this young detective never gave the signal. About an hour later, he came walking out the front door. What happened? Alec Leyland demanded. The young detective muttered an apology and confessed he had been overcome by the sight of the girl standing before him, completely naked. He had spent the money. It might seem strange that Alec Leyland was both good friends with Flora and also working to get her arrested. But Barbara Brooks says it's not that unusual for the time. The police often understood what was going on and didn't really want to interfere. I think that's true throughout the history of prostitution. There's also the fact that Flora could be a good information source for the cops. Her line of work gave her an inside line on Auckland's criminal underworld. There was also probably a bit of good old-fashioned corruption. Alec Leyland says at one point he brought his boss out to visit Flora. I rang up Flora. I said, look, Flora, I've got a new boss. I'd like to bring him along and introduce him to you. Alex said he turned up at Flora's with his boss and two other detectives. No sooner had the formalities been observed than she gave a signal. A bevy of seductive-looking girls sauntered into the room and demurely lined up before the open-mouthed policeman. Take your pick, said Flora with an imperious wave of her hand. They're all free. But Flora's dealings with the police didn't always go so smoothly. She appeared in court for brothel-keeping six times between 1962 and 1976, but only two of those cases ended with a jail sentence. One of my all-time favourite Flora stories comes from one of these trials. Here's how it's told in the Dictionary of New Zealand Biography. Kevin Ryan defended Mackenzie at the resultant trial, during which the judge and the jury were taken to her property to ascertain for themselves whether this was a brothel or, as Mackenzie said, simply a large house let as flats and used for entertaining. Ryan recalled his astonishment at the transformation the premises had undergone before the judicial visit. A large cross dominated the notice board in the lounge where pamphlets proclaimed Jesus saves and invited people to attend a Billy Graham crusade. As the jury walked through the flats, they were somewhat confused to see only single beds, on top of which lay large, ornate Bibles. Some were persuaded by Ryan's argument that Flora McKenzie was a lonely woman who liked company and gave young women a good roof over their heads, and the trial resulted in a hung jury. One of the first times Flora got hauled up in front of the courts was thanks to a newspaper article. In 1968, the New Zealand Truth photographed and published the number plates of cars parked outside famous Flora's. They threatened to name the car's owners, which reportedly included a lot of rich and powerful men. That Metro article on Alec Leyland put it like this. 
Laura's place was more like an exclusive club or, or an American Prohibition-era speakeasy than a brothel. It was the haunt of the well-to-do and the women were classy. Our membership role would have read like a who's who of the city's commercial and business world. At least one regular patron had a knighthood. That's backed up by a lot of other sources, including Flora McKenzie's former handyman, a guy called Rob Hewison, who was interviewed in the book Naked Truth by Rachel Francis. Most of the clients were very well-known businessmen, local politicians, mayors, QCs, barristers, bank managers, anyone who held in those days what you'd consider to be a pretty important position. Famous Flora's on Ring Terrace was, well, famous. It was luxuriously decorated with a sort of Japanese aesthetic. The women were dressed up, sometimes in gowns Flora designed personally. Apparently one room featured a round bed which could rotate on the spot. There were mirrors on the ceiling above it and a built-in sound system. In some ways, we're a long way from Flora McKenzie of the 20s and 30s, the high-class fashion designer in Queen Street. But in other ways, she's still very much operating inside those same elevated circles of Auckland society. Now, you might be tempted to think we're painting Flora and her business with rose-tinted glasses, and I'll admit it's quite difficult to work out which of these stories are gospel truth and which have been embellished over time. But there are just so many positive testimonials about her, including this first-hand account of a woman who worked at the Ring Terrace brothel. It comes from that same Ray Hayes interview from 1976. This woman said she heard about the Ring Terrace brothel and looked up Flora's name in the phone book. I decided to ring her up and see if she was hiring anybody, (laughs) conducting interviews. And so I rang her up and she scared the hell out of me when she answered the phone. (laughs) I could almost, you know, I couldn't even speak. I said, hello, um, Miss McKenzie? She said, yep. <laughs> I said, um, I'd like to make an appointment to see you, please. So you want to work, dear? <sighs> so I made the appointment and went down and saw her. And I was still terrified of her. But naturally now I'm not at all. She's just, she seems to have this really hard exterior, but she's soft as anything on the inside. She's so kind, good-hearted. She helps, really helps people out. She's really sweet, but she scares the hell out of a lot of guys. Yep, she sure did. Flora wasn't afraid of speaking her mind when it came to gender dynamics. Here's a quote from her which appears in the Dictionary of New Zealand Biography. Isn't every woman a prostitute? Married men pay their wives, don't they? I think men are useless b****s running around crying because they need sex. But I'm not a man-hater. What's good for one should be good for the other, and I think the time will come when there are places for women to go for men. I think women should be able to choose the men, buy one and then drop him afterward like they drop women. Flora was staunchly pro-choice and pro-contraception. Elizabeth Esther said she definitely saw her business as part of the feminist cause. She saw it as an opportunity to help women who had 
fallen on difficult times, whether or not their husbands were away at war and they were struggling for money, whether or not their um, weren't in safe relationships or they were single mums in a time when you just didn't do single mumming. She very much saw herself as someone who um, who helped women in peril in a society that did not support women, that men were definitely the, you know, got the better end of everything. She was a feminist and a staunchly, staunchly aware of that she was a feminist. But Floral could be quite conservative on some other issues. Her personal belief was that sex should come after marriage, and she also vocally opposed the sexual revolution, those kind of free love attitudes which were arriving in New Zealand in the 60s and 70s. She was also suspicious about benefits for single mothers. By reading the Bible and everything, I do think we're heading for another second. Sodom and Gomorrah, I mean, there's no respect for people. But when you see... You take places like Waiheke Island, they all go down there, they have all their long-haired friends, they're all on drugs. So I reckon that the government is really running a brothel. Children having babies with the government consent, you're keeping a girl of 16, the government allows them to have a child at 16 and to pay them to have a child at 16. It pays them to have two children. Well, why should anybody have sex at 16 and expect the old ratepayers to keep them to have free sex and it's honourable in the country? Well, if that isn't brothel keeping or something, I don't know. At the same time, Flora did embrace some new ideas about sexuality which were growing more popular in the 60s and 70s. She often described her own business as a form of sex therapy. Now, the doctors send us people that are all tied up, they can't handle the situation. Well, they come out and talk to me as if they were talking to their mother about all of their problems. Now, I think I've taken a big strain off Ward 10 in the Auckland Hospital. The matron there has sent people, I've been thanked. And then apart from that, we know quite a number of men that have been happily married over years, perhaps they're 60. They've got no ways and contacts of meeting anybody. They can't go down in a hotel and sit there and pick up a half-drunk Maori girl or something from a hotel so they come over to see me. They sit and chat and have a little bit of company and a few laughs and... uh, Well, it sort of uh, makes them feel they're wanted in the world again. Let's deal with that little dig about a half-drunk Maori girl. Rob Hewison, who, as we mentioned earlier, was Flora's former handyman, said Flora had strict policies when it came to the races of women working for her. According to Rob, she only hired Europeans or, and I quote, half or quarter caste Māori. I guess we could argue she was a woman of her time, but it's still not a great look. There's also the question of money. That same former handyman made this comment about how the women were paid. Maybe because of Flora's influence, they were far better at being thrifty then. Flora would hang on to their bank accounts and those girls could not get any money out unless their story was acceptable to her. That's how some of them built up their wealth. So this is painted as a benevolent move by Flora. But I spoke to Dame Catherine Healy, who's the founder of the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective, and she had quite a different perspective on that story. Oh, that's that sounds awful. 
um, just unpacking that. I mean, on on the surface, it sounds like, you know, well, they're, they're children and they have to be managed because they're going to spend their money on, you know, such things as alcohol or, you know, frivolous stuff. And, you know, I still hear that line coming from some operators and it's usually said with with you know kind of a benign take it's well meant i'm sure from their part but it's not well received mm. from on the part of the women because it is it's controlling i mean and often there's disputes over money and i imagine you know that hasn't changed and probably was as relevant in flora's time as as it is today where there are disputes over, you know, how much money you've handed over, and and I mean, it's one thing to sort of have the, you know, the the interaction when that money is being handed over, but for the owner to actually have control of your bank account completely sounds like an even further step beyond that. Sounds like we'd probably call it trafficking, yeah. you know, a condition related to trafficking today where you don't have control over your passport, you know, a sort of a parallel circumstance where you're kind of semi-trapped because you can't control your own money. It is possible the women who worked for Flora were totally fine with this arrangement. Certainly we have that direct interview with a woman who worked for Flora who was just full of praise about her. But Dame Catherine warns that might not be the whole story. The other complication, you know, like, so, you know, not only was she taking the bank accounts, they were living there. So can you imagine, appreciate, the, you know, the knock on the door at 2am and, you know, who's going to see that customer? Or People still live in brothels, but, you know, it can be um, a situation that has to be negotiated quite carefully. It's sort of hard when you're both to, to sort of say no would mean potentially you're out of job and out of a place to live. Could be. And, you know, we know. We, um, as an organisation, have also been contacted by brothels and told to come and get somebody who's been living there and it's it's been late at night. It's not, it's not cool. Still, I don't want to damn Flora based on the unverified testimony of one handyman. After all, there are still plenty of people who couldn't say enough positive things about her. One of them is Betty Bennett, New Zealand's first ever female police detective. She talked about Flora when she was interviewed for RNZ's Spectrum programme in 1992. Was she one of your kind of contacts, that you do, do, a way of keep, keeping, eye, keeping an eye on the underworld? Or? Well, that mainly is the reason why I went to Flora's. Yes. You never tried it, to close her down? No. Well, it had no. nothing to do with me. That no. came under the special duties squad. Ah, yes. They, they would... Betty said she was invited to Flora's house after she'd been released from Kingseat Psychiatric Hospital. She'd spent three months locked up there due to her alcoholism after her latest conviction for brothel keeping. She goes out to Kingseat. She said, they all thought I was bloody mad. They tried to say that I was mad. She said, guess what they did for me, Bet? She said, they got this jigsaw puzzle. It was a jigsaw puzzle of an animal. She said, and there's these two head shrinkers sitting opposite me watching me put it together. She said, I put the body, I put the four legs. She said, and their eyes are sparkling. She said, and I can see it's an elephant. She said, and I put his head there. She said, then I got its trunk, she said, and stuck it up its arse. She said, well, I nearly killed myself. She said, you should have seen the look on their face. She said, but she said, fancy them giving me things like that. She said, they couldn't even add two and two together. But that... That was how yeah. Flora would lead you along. And doing that with that <clears throat> jigsaw puzzle, I could just yeah. see her. Especially when she got the trunk, well, we just roared. But 
that, that, that was Flora. Mm. She was a good person. She always treated me well, and I think I treated her well. Um, six nights out of the seven going home from work, I often used to call into Flora's. If I just walked up the back stairway, saw her sitting in, in the chair and just drinking away, she wouldn't even know I'd been. Wouldn't even know I'd been. I just used to tootle off. But there was the occasion when I'd walk up the back stairs and I'd see Flora lying on the floor, bombed out of her mind, so. Big woman, but I used to put her to bed. Um, there was never anything said the next day or any time about who put her to bed or anything like that. Flora was well aware that it was me and I always made sure that the dog was fed because she had a couple of big Alsatians. But... Um, I always feel as though Flora would have done the same thing for me if I'd have, if the positions had been reversed. But eventually, Flora's drinking got the better of her. Elizabeth Esther. She became so kind of unwell and, you know, sort of unkempt and people gravitated towards another place, I expect. You know, the name Flora's went off to, I think last time it was in a place on Pitt Street, and someone else ran the business you know, because Famous Flora's had quite a bit of cachet. You know, the last of that hoarding is still attached to that little building on the corner in town still. She would have just quietly, you know, sifted away in Ring Terrace until the last. Flora McKenzie died on July 8th, 1982. She was 79 years old. She had liver cirrhosis and a weak heart, probably thanks to her years of heavy drinking. She tried to donate her house to the Salvation Army, but they refused to accept a former brothel as a gift. According to legend, she eventually gave her house away to the guy who delivered her whiskey. She'd led a pretty spectacular life, lived through two world wars, probably earned a small fortune off one of them. She saw the rise of the women's rights movement, the sexual revolution, and if she'd lived a bit longer, she would have seen an increasingly powerful campaign to legalise the line of work which had seen her ostracised from polite society for most of her life. She was a black sheep in her time, but today she'd be seen as a legitimate businesswoman. After all, sex work's been legal in New Zealand since 2003. Flora McKenzie wasn't a shy person by any stretch of the imagination. But still, a lot of her life remains shrouded in mystery. Sometimes I wish there was a definitive encyclopedia of Flora. And then other times I feel that she should be allowed to have her secrets and and the fabrication, some of them created by her, some by other people, you know, that it's quite lovely that she should be able to be like, did she, didn't she, was she, wasn't she? You know, it's like her final um, private moment. Very special thanks to all my guests on today's show, Barbara Brooks, Elizabeth Esther and Dame Catherine Healy. Also, extra special thanks to Nataunga Sound and Vision for those interviews with Flora McKenzie and Betty Bennett. I'll post the links to the full audio up on the RNZ website in case you want to have a listen. Black Sheep is written by me, William Ray. Our executive producer is Tim Watkin, our script editor is Justin Gregory, and our sound engineer is Phil Benge. We had voice acting help from Eva Corlett, Max Toll, Duncan Smith, Adam McCauley, and Colin Peacock. 
If you liked this episode, please subscribe and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's the biggest thing you can do to help more people find Black Sheep. Also, check out some of RNZ's other awesome podcasts. We've got a bunch of new ones out at the moment, including Getting Better, a series investigating Māori perspectives on New Zealand's health system. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.